Hello, everyone. My name is Zachariah Samuel, and I'm a MS1 at the CUNY School of Medicine. My name is Amar. I'm a senior at Case Western. And welcome to the MSX podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn from their insight and expertise. This week, we have Dr. Sumitra Thakur, a physician and venture capitalist. He completed medical school at NYU and business school at Stanford GSB. He currently works at CPMC in San Francisco as a hospitalist and Med Mountain Ventures, a fund which he helped to create. Thanks for joining us. Hey guys, awesome to be here. Yeah, and so we'd love to start by exploring you know, your story from the beginning. And your story includes being in school for a you know, significant portion of time. I'd love to learn what type of student you were in high school and in college. Totally. You know, uh, I was always a huge nerd. I spent a lot of time in high school doing speech and debate. I spent a lot of time in college doing student government, which was so incredibly unpopular that people would often win elections by like getting 10 votes, 15 votes as a write-in the night before. Uh, And I thoroughly enjoyed both. They had no relevant exposure for anything I did professionally, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, I was a sort of careless and meandering student. I went to a liberal arts school that had no requirements and a lot of freedom. And I definitely think that I was not mature enough to handle that. So I spent a whole bunch of time taking, you know, classes like, you know, independent studies on like Buddhism and physics and uh, like an unusual number of classes on, you know, the philosophy of science and religion. Uh, it was all very fun. I don't know if I draw, <laughs> I don't think I draw on it very often. Uh, I, you know, I enjoyed it. And my wife says I'm good at cocktail parties as a result. I can make a lot of small talk. Uh, do you have like an interesting minor then? You know, so I did neuroscience as my major. I think the thing that I really appreciate, I think the classes that ended up being super helpful were um, taking a discrete mathematics class that later on when I took some machine learning classes for fun was just like super, super helpful. I found that very revealing. I found that taking a lot of advanced science classes that focused heavily on journal club formats was probably the line of thinking that I use the most as a VC now. And it also was probably the line of thinking that made uh, the really stressful part of med school and residency a lot easier. Um, And I think the most surprising thing is I took this intro anthropology class that talked a lot about human interaction, human norms, uh, and the anthropology of money and gifts, which I think was mysteriously incredibly useful and practical. It was probably like the most practical class that I took uh, in college, which definitely I would not have thought about at the time. Interesting. So actually my class registration is coming up on Monday. Uh, So I'm kind of choosing my last semester of my last year in college, you know, classes. So for students that are still in college now, what are maybe a few classes you'd highly recommend they should take? You know, I think that it depends a lot on where you are. You can often have the same material taught at different places and with like a really luminary person, it's like you learn something really cool and elsewhere it's very lame. I had an ecology professor who taught ecology with a very rigorous like microeconomic framework. And despite never taking microeconomics, when I later took it at Stanford, it felt very familiar because I saw all of it before in ecology and it made sense. 
And this guy was like a luminary. He was one of the best professors I had. Uh, and um, in my experience, I'm so glad that I took that random ecology class for fun. Uh, but it would be, I think, foolish of me to recommend uh, for UMR to go take an ecology class because there's a good chance you'd spend the entire time just drawing pyramids and food chains and stuff. It was, it was a pleasant surprise. Um, but I think that oftentimes classes are useful, not because of what they teach, but like the underlying framework they give. And it's usually luminary professors who can transmit not just like knowledge, but, you know, a style of thinking. So this way down the road, it's like, you know, it's not like OCHEM per se, but it was like that one OCHEM professor who taught you like a fundamental framework of thinking. So like diving deep into that, you know, framework of thinking, like what were some of those like quintessential lessons you learned, let's say in college specifically? You know, um, I think that, I think that there were a few things that I really, uh, I really appreciated. Student government was a very good example of seeing how a really well-run uh, academic institution worked on the inside. It was interesting to see how an organization that was ostensibly like a very uh, uh, idealistic and principled organization ran also incredibly efficiently. And you see these people who could both be uh, like a force for good, but also have a certain rigor in how they ran their institution and pulled it off really well. I think about that a lot in healthcare because we want to both like run really good organizations, but we also usually, especially like doctors want to build aspirational organizations. It's like not about making money, it's about caring for folks, doing the right thing, doing good. Uh, it's very hard to pull that off. The reason I think most doctors hate their jobs is that usually their jobs like don't really uh, like run very well or they don't uh, like, you know, really dignify and value humans. So in college, seeing how like a university balanced that, I found that really revealing. Um, anthropology taught me a lot about norms, uh, things that go unstated. And this comes up a lot because especially the way we view startups, whenever you hear people say, you know, I like that person when I first saw them, or like, you know, this founder has a certain charisma. A lot of that has to do with people who send uh, very subtle signals, sort of signal in a very primal way, like I'm in your in-group, I belong. I think it's why VC investment has been very singular, uh, why we tend to invest in people who look like us to a fault. Uh, we Being attuned to those kinds of biases was very liberating because uh, it helped me deliberately sourced way beyond just my in-group sort of look everywhere for deals. It ended up serving me really well as a VC. And then on the flip side, when I've been raising money, I noticed that I often have to pretend to be a certain person, look a certain way, talk a certain way, send certain signals. When I'm raising money from folks who are sort of like, you know, very traditionally wealthy, come from like a very particular background. Uh, these are hard things to just understand and process on a personal level. And it was interesting to get like a very high level anthropological view of, you know, how do people relate to each other? What are all of these like densely textual interactions that we have that go, that where so much goes unspoken that you don't really understand uh, if you just look at what's obvious. We can transition uh, going into like medical school. And I was wondering, cause a lot of people talk about how 
the transition from college to med school was very difficult. So I was wondering, like, what, what areas of growth did you identify in yourself going from college into med school? Totally. Med school is tough. Uh, I would recommend keep an open mind and fail quickly and try all kinds of things. It felt like the Olympics of studying. Uh, and, you know, Zach, you're going through this. You know this. It's yeah. so intense. Like, every part of medical training makes everything before it seem like a joke, which seems crazy, but it's like college was hard. And then you go through like, like MS1 and you're like, whoa, like this. And then you do like, and then you're like literally falling asleep on your feet. Like, you know, like MS3, you're doing a surgery rotation, like sleeping a couple hours a night, like, you know, like scared to urinate because you're scrubbed in for six hours. And you're like, you know, suddenly it wasn't so bad sitting in the library for 12 hours being like, Hey, I'm going to go eat lunch. Like I can go on my own terms and I can sit down during the day. Every part of medical training makes the part before it look easy. Um, I think that the most important thing is try a whole bunch of stuff, keep an open mind. If your method of studying and working isn't working, that's cool. Like that's fine. Try something else. And if it works for someone else, doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. So keep an open mind. The other thing I'd toss out is that it's a marathon, not a sprint. The folks who really gun hard, um, a lot of very classically, they tend to uh, self-combust at some point. Like the people who sort of don't have a balance are like too intense or also very interpersonally toxic. Inevitably, that backfires on them at some point. The folks who ended up being the most successful year after year were the folks who could show up consistently, who tended to turn toward people, pull up the people around them, not put them down, but also uh, were very balanced. Like they had lives, they had things they cared about outside of like surviving the next test. Uh, and they had like the endurance to show up and do, you know, the like many grueling things to finish med school, finish residency, you know, possibly finish like fellowship and sub, uh, sub fellowship. And uh, you mentioned also that you had a lot of interest, you know, during college, during your undergrad. I was wondering how many of them were able to translate or if you were able to keep up with them during med school, if any. You know, I had a startup totally unrelated to healthcare when I was in med school. I fell into this startup that built movements for famous people, former heads of state, Nobel laureates, tech icons, et cetera. It was very cool and very flashy, but it had no immediate medical relevance. It was really tough. Um, I had a whole bunch of people say, you know, you're not publishing papers, you're not doing these things, you can't, you know, you're closing a bunch of doors, you can't do a subspecialty surgical field, etc. Uh, like if you're not like focused on that from day one. So it's okay to make trade-offs. Um, but you should make sure that you know that you're doing them. I definitely was less productive as a researcher, you know, I got a couple papers, I like, you know, did a few like posters, uh, but I definitely could have done, you know, two or three times more if I wasn't also chasing that stuff. So I think that I probably overdid it. Uh, the people who did it better were people who probably did it maybe 25, 50% uh, less than me and focused more on other things. It also took a really big personal effect. Like I didn't have a lot of time for friends, for my relationship, for my health. Um, it constantly felt like, you know, one thing or the other was on fire. So I don't think I did that part particularly well. Um, I think you can definitely balance interests outside of medicine. 
uh, when in medical school and still have time to show up and do really well. So I'm sensing a common theme of like hard work and resilience. Uh, what was something that really, you know, was the light at the end of the tunnel or what you were chasing for? You know, uh, early on, I wasn't sure. I felt like I was just like showing up and like running really hard and working myself into a frenzy being like, you know, other folks are killing it. I got to kill it. I got to show up. Uh, the startup that I worked on in med school, the one that did stuff in politics, it ultimately ended up imploding. Uh, and that setback was actually very uh, liberating. Like it was very maturing. Uh, it ended up, uh, I ended up realizing, you know, I'd rather work on something that I love. I'd really rather like, you know, pursue things that are like honestly interesting to me. And I'm just going to say no to things that aren't. And I went back to med school. I had like the best year of med school ever. I picked up research projects that I thought were fun. And anytime I was like on service and an attending was like, oh, you know, why don't you write this up as a case? I'd just be very honest. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't find this interesting. Like, I don't find this interesting and it's not like a good use of my time professionally. You should totally write it up. I'm happy to recommend another med student to do it. I similarly, when I was previously trying to like, you know, do startup stuff, I was like, I'm gonna try to go as big as hard, et cetera. And when I came back, I was like, you know, I just wanna like do cool stuff. I wanna do meaningful stuff with people I like, founders I like, you know, partners I like. Um, and I didn't think I would enjoy VC, but I found my stride. Um, I think that having the courage to be honest and to be like, I don't enjoy this. I don't like these people. I don't like this workflow was very liberating. My friends who burned out like later in their medical careers usually lied to themselves about what they were doing. And then they would hit like, you know, several years into like a field, which is very prestigious, but like not right for them. Uh, and they were very unhappy. So I feel fortunate that I got that lesson when I did. A question about like forming Med Mountain Ventures, like why, uh, why did you think that you needed to form a fund rather than join one? Like what was something that was missing? Totally. You know, this is a great question. You make an omelet with the stuff that you find in your fridge in the same way I was in residency. I had someone who I helped out with his company who, was, who had exited his company. He started investing. Uh, we had a very serendipitous path. He hit me up and he said, you know, would you like to invest with me? And originally I said, you know, I'm not sure if I would enjoy VC. I'm happy to collaborate. I don't know if I would do it full time, but, you know, keep me in mind. He later on unexpectedly, he was a young guy. He was like, you know, 40 at the time. He had a subarachnoid uh, hemorrhage. He had a hemorrhagic stroke. He was disabled for uh, several months. And during that time, he asked me to run his fund while he recovered. And I really enjoyed it. So he came back. Fortunately, he's okay. Um, in the journey, he met our third GP, Caitlin, who's also a rock star. We ended up really loving working together, really liking each other and hitting a stride with the deals we were finding. I would say that Starting a fund is incredibly hard. We would all have probably made way more money and saved a bunch of time and had like, you know, much nicer things if we just joined existing funds. The way it worked out, it made sense for us to do it on our own. And we found a lot of joy doing it. But it was definitely the harder, less sensible thing to do. So going off of that, I was wondering if you had any general frameworks or advice for students that are 
trying to do similar things by exploring interdisciplinary careers in healthcare. Totally. I would say this. I used to think that there was a path to go down and, you know, a right way to do it because everything in healthcare has a right way. You want to be an orthopedic surgeon, you know, there's a way to do that. There's a scorecard. You want to do plastics. Like that's cool. There's like a way to do that. And I kept meeting people who did cool careers who similarly were like, do this, do that. There's no single right path. The most useful thing is to bring something to the table that you know really well and to collaborate out all of the things that you don't know. And you can learn those things over time, like through collaboration. It's kind of like how sometimes the best research groups, you've got like, you know, a bunch of domain experts in this domain and then a handful of people from others. You've got your like biostatistician, you have your machine learning person, maybe you have like a like bench biochemist or something. And it's like the sort of friction of people with different backgrounds collaborating to solve something that really lights a fire. I would say to anyone exploring an interdisciplinary uh, career, keep an open mind. I would probably recommend against getting a joint degree unless you have a very clear need for it. I would instead say double down on the things that you love. Like if you really love a certain kind of medicine or like a topic or, you know, a technology, double down. It's easy to find opportunities to get exposure. You can just call it research. And as long as you publish something on it, you can get cover to spend a lot of your time in medical school, like, you know, developing those skill sets. If you do a joint degree, make it very targeted, have a very clear thesis for how it helps you. Your university will totally upsell the degree to you because they make so much money with like, you know, people getting like additional degrees that they take out loans to finance. So if you do it, don't trust your university, make sure it like clearly adds value to you. And um, don't oversweat it. Don't think that you need a credential or a license or permission to show up to the table and start contributing. If there's something interdisciplinary that you want to do, uh, feel free to reach out to the people who are doing those kinds of things now and collaborate in whatever capacity you can. Like these things develop, you know, over time, show up wherever you are, and you will find out the skills you need to grow. Humans are like really bad at guessing what they want to do. And so where does the balance come from, like from saying no to an experience without having tried it and just saying yes and trying out the experience? It's a good question. I, you know, another way to frame this is when do you explore and when do you exploit? I think that if everyone is in a different stage, I'm constantly surprised by people who are the same age as me, who've had ostensibly the same lived experience as me, who are totally different in terms of uh, their interest in exploring or exploiting. There are a lot of people who are really unhappy with what they're doing, and they're very curious about things that they've never tried before, and they kind of want to be more in an explore phase. Uh, and I've met other people who have been uh, living, uh, you know, in many domains, doing many different kinds of things. And finally, they're like, you know, instead of doing five things, I found one thing that I really want to do. There's no right answer. It's always worth keeping an open mind. When I decided to focus less on exploring and more on exploiting, it was very clear that my pendulum had swung too far to one side. And when I started doubling down and being like, you know, I'm just going to focus on these few things, more wood behind fewer arrows, it worked out really well. Like I suddenly did a lot better at the things I wanted to do. 
And I was also much happier and I had way more time and it felt like the right decision for me. The, we never get clean answers for how to make these trade-offs. A very fair way to deal with an uncertain world. And you know, it's the same thing that we do in the ICU when we're trying to evoke a physiology and do critical care is take a step and see how it goes and collect data and see if your theory is correct. If you think that exploring is right for you, that keeping an open mind, saying yes, and taking on a wide variety of things is what's going to be important for you right now, try it out. And if you end up being like, you know, my mind really expanded, I ran into some really cool things, like that's cool, double down, double down, keep it going. And if you're like, you know, my leads suck, like I really love that one thing and everything else I found, it's like very clear that that one thing is like, you know, my jam, like that's cool. Then, you know, you collect the data, you tried it out, try out the other thing now, try doubling down on that and seeing how you go. It's noisy, there's no easy answer, but there are definitely better and worse ways to do it. I thought that explore versus uh, exploit idea, I think that's like a really, I've never heard that phrase that way before. That was really cool. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Mar, you can take the next one. Sure. So I, I do want to talk about now like future pipe dreams and uh, medicine. So what does the future physician look like? You know, I think that it depends. I think that for every field, it'll mean different things. For surgeons, I think that it's going to be doing fewer surgeries, doing the same surgery over and over as much as you can. The signal is there that, you know, the overgeneralist surgeon uh, does a lot worse. Like the person who only does one procedure over and over again, you know, does a lot better. And I think that this will make that feel like those fields um, higher performing, but possibly much more dreary. Uh, I suspect that's the direction that that's going to go. For a lot of fields where work can be task shifted, where instead of the physician doing it, someone else could do it with really good supervision, I think that we're going to see a flurry of attempts to do that. Uh, some will be better and some will be worse. Probably a few will be really good and many will be terrible. A lot of this will be, um, and it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how technology shapes that. It'll be a lot of how do we, it's hard to go from one physician to zero physicians, but it's very easy to go from 10 radiologists caring for 100 patients to four radiologists caring for 100 patients with either technology or task-shifted labor, uh, you know, scaling those four physicians to provide the same level of care. That'll be a story over and over again. And the final part is we have no real market for healthcare in this country. It's entirely prices and costs that are dictated by government policy. And the winds will blow in different directions and fields that will make a lot of money will make very little and fields that pay really poorly will make a lot. This happened over and over again. You keep hearing about how, you know, reimbursement will change and suddenly like radiation oncology is like super hot or it's not, or PM&R is super hot or it's not. That trend will continue, but I suspect that there's going to be increasing pressure uh, pushing down specialist salaries because this country is going to go bankrupt by how much it's spending on healthcare. And that's going to be low hanging fruit to go after. Is there a problem with like the latency period of technology innovation in healthcare where you have like some amazing biotech advance 
but it can't be implemented within the first, like at mass scale within the first 10 years. And once it is, then after 10 years, there's like a new med device. From what I understand, like technology and knowledge, especially in like the medical field is exponential uh, because they keep building off each other. So is there like some implications with that latency period and how might we fix that? I'll tell you, I'll tell you the framework that I like to use to think about this. Every system, whether a company or a country, um, or, you know, like uh, even universities, student clubs, every institution has to make a trade-off between maximizing upside potential and minimizing downside risk. Uh, the corporate example is you could have a company that's like, you know, shoot for the fences, take a bunch of risks. Like we, if you get like a thousand X better product, like that's cool. And we're willing to fail over and over again for that chance. Other companies are like, you know, we can't mess up. Every single thing has to be perfect. We can't take any risk. Keep your head down, keep it going, play it safe. I'll talk about what we do and then what we should do. What we do in this country is we have a healthcare system, which is very geared towards minimize downside risk, uh, like make it so that uh, people are as safe as possible in the healthcare system using existing ways of doing things, because those are the things that we really know. So change very slowly, set like an incredibly high bar for something new. In contrast, medical systems where the legacy system is greatly overwhelmed and fledgling are very much like, you know, upside potential. So you'll hear about very clever AI diagnostics that will be mired for a long time in the FDA here, but that will be like, you know, you'll see like a similar group doing product launch in India with like very little scrutiny, uh, getting, you know, very far ahead very quickly. And it's because one system is very much like we can't take risk because, and like, you know, our system as bad as it is, like, you know, people aren't dropping dead, like we can't tolerate, like putting lives at risk um, to get quick innovation. Whereas other countries are like, our system is so far behind that we really need, you know, these kinds of miracles. We're very open to trying. So at a societal level, we've made a trade-off where we're very risk averse when we come to healthcare. I think that that's in a really broad sense Fair, it's probably the right thing to do for us right now. What's inexcusable is that this larger culture of being very averse to change often resists um, when change is actually not very risky and very straightforward. So for example, you'll see changes in guideline-directed medical therapy for a condition, and they'll say, you know, people who have like these criteria, if you give them this drug, they will live a lot longer. But then when you go to prescribe it, you find yourself suddenly mired by like an insurance company that's like very skeptical of this and very hostile to it. And it's very, very difficult to do. You see a lot of uh, lag between when guidelines are like, you know, we just discovered this is the best way to care for heart failure patients. And you look at a huge population and it's like, like, you know, the vast majority of people are not getting appropriate guideline directed medical therapy for that condition. I think that mindful that the larger trade-off that we've made is the right trade-off, that kind of friction is a like unambiguous harm. And our system is worse off because of it. It's a surprisingly hard problem to fix because all of the incentives in our healthcare system make no sense including um, as long as you have a really big fee-for-service component in so many different parts of your value chain, it's very hard 
to motivate people with like a like altruistic goal of um, you know giving the best care. The other hard part is that information is so incredibly vast now that people are just way behind. Like they're like drowning in information. The average primary care physician in this country is remarkably old and a shocking number of them have uh, outside of the bare minimum to keep their medical license, like have not been picking up medical textbooks and, you know, staying up to date with what, you know, like the ACC, AHASA published a few years ago. Are there any companies that are trying to make it easier to just keep updated on medical knowledge? You know, I saw one recently. So in brief, in brief, I think that up to date, if that's all that happened is a huge step forward. I love the fact that it has improved everyone's game so much. Like, I love the fact that it's like a household name, like everywhere I've trained, even if it's something super routine, like community acquired pneumonia, people are like, oh yeah, you know, let me just like double check up to date to make sure I'm doing the right thing, which is awesome. It's not a fancy solution. It's basically like, you know, during 1990s execution and that's fine. Like people are doing it and I love that. EHRs are really powerful ways to uh, nudge, have like a really profound way to nudge behavior by doing things like ordering, if you search antibiotics, like the first antibiotic you see versus the second, like small decisions like that have profound impact at scale. And there's a lot of room for good to do very clever human design hacks in your EHR to nudge behavior at scale. And it's like literally as simple as there's like two kinds of vitamin D tests. One we order all the time for everyone. And one we order for working out very esoteric kinds of metabolic arrangements. And like you in the past, people used to constantly order the wrong one, which is super expensive and very slow. And medical systems realize that they just put in parentheses, like you probably don't want to order this one. Like you want to order that one. Like shockingly that like reduced misordering by like 90%. Like it had really profound impacts. So very clever hacks in the way we consume information often have really profound impact. It could be as simple as nudging people to be like, hey, by the way, you know, in this hospital stay, this person had a diagnosis of AFib. Uh, Like in even the most frail elderly patients, this like very large number of people would benefit from being on anticoagulation. You know, you didn't order one, like, you know, seriously consider ordering one uh, before they go home. Small nudge, you know, just a box, just like a flag, you click through it. Uh, those things when done well can be very good when done poorly, they tend to saturate people and people will just tune them all out. So talking about, uh, EHR specifically, I was wondering what your take was on the future of clinical research with the widespread adoption of Epic and, you know, any potential for cross institutional collaborations with, you know, all this data that they have. Totally. You know, there are, There's a very good pressure from the government in this country to stop information blocking at all levels. Uh, So the providers can see records from other hospitals, so that patients can access their own medical records. At every step of the way, uh, really large institutions will do everything they can to block as much information flow as they can legally and to make it as frictional, expensive, and tedious as possible. The other hard part is that a lot of information that's in the structured health record is total garbage, like how we bill for conditions, et cetera, when we like, you know, submit billings is shockingly arbitrary. So I think that there's going to be a lot of data collaboration. There are a couple of companies that I'm following. Uh, A lot of these companies I think would actually be really cool for like, you know, anyone interested to keep an eye on that are looking at 
how do we look at large, huge sets of data, either within a system or across systems? Uh, there's this really big interest in the clinical trial community to do disseminated uh, clinical trials or to do synthetic control arms. So if you have a really rare condition, if you have like a population of a few hundred or a few thousand who have your condition like in the entire US, it's very hard to do a really well-designed synthetic control arm because it's so easy for it to be confounded by all kinds of things, but a very rigorous, team of data scientists working with enough data, uh, controlling for as many things as possible can do a solidly decent job. And when it's the difference between, you know, there may not be enough people alive to power your study to solve catastrophic condition, you know, that could be a game changer. So there's a lot of really cool stuff happening with real world efficacy and real world evidence to uh, change how we do trials, how we really see, you know, when we launch a drug, how does it actually perform? Are weird side effects happening we may not have picked up on over time? Um, I think back on how it took us a long time to realize that like a large number of Asians don't metabolize Plavix and uh, it just like doesn't work on them. And in hindsight, if we had better trials early on, we would have picked up on that, but we totally didn't. And for a long time, so many Asians who were put on DAP ended up having, you know, catastrophic strokes that could have been avoided, you know, catastrophic heart attacks. We found that out later. And when we found that out later, it was, you know, a really bad look for medicine. And the hope is that with companies like this, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, other plavixes and other populations. And it's going to be fascinating to figure out, like, you know, it turns out this drug is actually better than that drug. We never did a head to head. It turns out like this drug doesn't work in this context. We just presumed it did. So given your, uh, your venture capitalist, I'm sure you've read uh, zero to one. And so you might know the question I really want to ask. What is, what is one thing that you believe to be true that very few people agree with you on? It's a good question. I, hmm, this is a good question. Uh, I think that I have a lot of contrarian beliefs. I think that the biggest is more important than uh, actually getting better for humans is having a really strong subjective experience of being cared for and understanding that very fundamental need and respecting it as something you have to reckon with will make a huge difference in whether your healthcare intervention is successful or not. I would give the example of uh, homeopathy and Ayurvedic medicines. I went to an Ayurvedic hospital in India one time. Everyone was super happy. Everyone was like, you know, uh, like so blown away. Uh, the facilities were beautiful. They were filled with art. They gave you all of this attention. I think every single one of the therapies that they offered were totally bogus and had no medical merit, but the patients were incredibly happy. And it was weird because I'm used to being in hospitals where I have literally magical medicines that will save people's lives and no one is happy. Or you go to Walgreens and you pick up your meds and you know, it's not like a very pleasant experience, but those medicines work. We know they work. We know how they work. They're like pretty cool stuff. You go to a homeopathic pharmacy, not to cast shade on homeopathy as well. I'm casting a lot of shade right now, but like, you know, the homeopathic medicines will like by all means not work, but the homeopathic pharmacist will give you such a wonderful, dignifying sense of being cared about. They will spend so much time talking to you. 
when I lived in this very, uh, when I had a very small like medical resident apartment in this very posh part of Santa Monica, the homeopathic pharmacies would always be busy all the time. People thoroughly love them, like well-educated people who, you know, have a lot of sophistication, truly appreciated it. It's because they got a sense of being cared for. If you can do that with a product that doesn't actually create value, imagine what you could do if you have a product that actually works and you create the same experience. I was curious, like, why do you think that like the allopathic school of thought has, you know, maybe lost touch with that sense of care in your opinion? I would say a few things. I think that the pathway we have to create physicians is uh, strongly select for certain factors that ultimately become reinforcing over uh, generations and over a long time. They become so fundamental to the field that the field can't see that it does it. I've seen so many professors who are nationally acclaimed, uh, you know, medical ethicists, uh, you know, medical humanities, uh, luminaries, who I see at the bedside do incredibly callous, mean, sort of careless things. And they seem to lack the self-awareness to understand, uh, like, you know, like how they come off to patients. They certainly know what they should be doing when you hear them talk, when you hear them publish, when you hear them teach when you hear them write books, et cetera, it sends a very different message from like, you know, how they practice. And if those people can still have, you know, moments that are just like so blindsided, you can imagine what like the rest of us, the normal people, the humans are like day to day. I think that our pathway is so weird. We never hold real jobs. We often come from very siloed backgrounds. It's often like healthcare families going into healthcare. Uh, we're often like younger, healthier, we may not have like directly suffered with disease immediately. I think a lot of these things uh, really erode um, like a common kind of uh, empathy and compassion. Um, I didn't realize until I started attending that I only meet people as a hospitalist on their like the worst day of their lives. Like every single time I do an admission, it's just like, you know, like, you know, it's like my whatever, like third admission for the day, like for me, it's just a normal day, but it's like for every single person and usually for their loved ones, it's like the worst day of their lives. And they're, you know, genuinely terrified. They probably don't have like, you know, even like their clothes or their phone charger and they're scared they're going to die. And if they're not scared, they're going to die. Almost everyone is terrified of the medical bill they're going to get. Um, and like reflecting on that, I thought was really transformative for me. Um, it's, I think everyone, a lot of people have moments like that in their own practice, but even though we see it in med school, even though every med school says that they value this kind of like compassion and humanity, for some reason in our system, it's just not, um, it's still not, I think as prominent as uh, where it could be. I think now we're nearing the end. So I'd love to ask for like any final piece of advice for students that are interested in healthcare, interdisciplinary careers in healthcare, or just you know, entering the job force in general. Totally. You know, your differences are what makes you unique. 
Uh, our field is filled with so many people who have excellent traditional scorecards. Their actual grades are amazing. Their publications are amazing. Uh, they, you know, check off all of the boxes. It's usually the frictions that make people fascinating. It's the people who are pre-med, who never major in the sciences, who major in history or writing or something else, who have something to say. It's the people who have, you know, like an economics background or a math background or CS background who show up, who are suddenly very fascinating to all kinds of research groups that are like, you know, we have a bunch of med students who have like traditional pre-med classes, but it's cool that you can write in Python or it's cool that you know how to do like difference in difference, you know, analysis and, you know, econometrics for like outcomes research. All of the thing, or like, you know, it's cool that you like read books and you write beautiful essays and you, you know, connect with and share your experiences, these like human experiences you experience in the hospital um, in the written word. You should lean into the things that make you weird. There are, uh, whatever those things are, there's some subset out there within healthcare where it could give you really strong grounds to stand in. I'm blown away by the number of people who I know who are, you know, really sincere, uh, like extreme running enthusiasts who are now doing like sports medicine. And they love the fact that they get to hang out with, you know, athletes on race day for like ultra marathons and volunteer and provide, you know, uh, like, uh, like medical first aid for those. And it's like a really cool way to marry the thing that they spent their entire life doing that they love with a field of healthcare that they get to do. Uh, you can do it with almost any interest. You can find some way to combine the two in an interesting way that makes you richer for it. Well, thank you, Dr. Thakur, for joining us. And this has been the MSX Podcast.